Okay, y'all, today we are in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Um, that's our passage for today. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Okay, I will let you turn there. And I want to ask an introductory question before we get into our message today. So my question is, what makes it hard to be a Christian? What makes it hard to be a Christian? And I'm thinking specifically what things like outside of you, like in the world, at school, that you see online, what are the things that you hear or know people say that make it hard to be a Christian? The world has a lot of things to say about Jesus and about Christ followers. Um, people will often say that Christians are narrow-minded, Christians are bigoted, Christians are hateful, Christians claim to know the truth but are actually just blind to it. I'm sure that you'll hear that all the time. Um, and you probably, at the same time, will hear a lot of like, alternate truths um, that people use to replace Christ when they get rid of God from their lives. Um, people will say that Jesus isn't enough, so we need other sources of truth or um, other ways to make ourselves good people. Uh, people will say that Jesus is just one path to heaven. There are other ways that you can get to God. People will say that God doesn't actually care about sin, but loves us for who we are. And I ask that question because I think a lot of times we can get so caught up with those things and maybe wonder, what does God have to say to us who are swimming in a world filled with unbelief? What does God, how does the Bible speak to us in the midst of a world that is set on rejecting Christ and rejecting truth? And it's my joy to say that God has a lot of good stuff for us um, in the midst of false teaching and all of these things that we might hear in our, in our day-to-day lives. Um, and a really, a really amazing passage um, that, that gives us comfort and truth in the midst of our world is in Colossians 2, um, 6-15. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Colossians, and we've titled our series, Colossians Living in the Light of the Sun. And if you've um, been with us, you uh, m- might remember that the main idea of this series is that if you know Jesus Christ, and if you love him, and if you live for him, then he will make sense of life. When he, and he alone, is the radiant sun in the center of the solar system of our lives, he gives light to everything else so that we can see life and our world truly as it is. So um, we've been walking through Colossians verse by verse to see how Paul, the author of this letter, tries to prove that to um, the church of Colossae. Um, So over the past few weeks, we've talked about the supremacy of Jesus, that he's God, that he's the preeminent one. We talked about how we are broken sinners and, and how Jesus is redeeming us and making us holy. We talked about, how, about, about Paul's life, his mission to present other Christians as mature in Christ and how that should be our mission too. And throughout 
and what we've studied so far, we've seen that in the context of Colossians, there's this sort of false teaching um, that is tempting the Colossians to believe that Christ isn't enough um, and that the gospel maybe isn't good or real or sufficient for them. And that is a context very similar to what we might find ourselves facing in, in our day-to-day um, lives. So today, we finally get out of Paul's opening remarks, and we arrive at what we might consider the thesis of the book of Colossians. Uh, it's, it's the, or Paul's like stating his main idea, the thing that he wants to communicate to the Colossian church. It's the summary statement. And so in tune um, with our theme for this study, I titled, I made our key idea for tonight, a command that really summarizes the whole book. And it's this, walk in the light of the sun. Paul wants to say to the Colossian church, walk in the light of the sun. Walk in Christ. And in this passage, Paul presents the core argument of the book of Colossians in three parts. And of course, I alliterated it because I like when things are alliterated. Um, The three points that we have today are the command, the context, and the catalyst. Uh, and, and these three um, are, are sections of Paul's argument telling, or building his, as he builds his argument to explain why should, we should walk in Christ, why we should walk in the light of the sun. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help to understand your word and to believe it, to see how it applies to our lives. And we ask for humble, open hearts, and that you would be with us, illumining our minds to these truths, helping us to believe them and see that they are good for us. And I pray that we would come away with clarity in our minds about where we stand before you and clarity in our minds about the help that you've given us in this passage in particular, as Paul commands us to walk in Christ. We ask all these things with confidence that your word is sufficient for us, that there is good truth in this passage for us to to take in and be changed by. And so we ask that Christ would be honored and exalted as we humble ourselves before your word. Speak through me. God, help me get out of the way as I try and bring out what the text says. May you be glorified in all of it. pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, let's read Colossians 2. Verses 6 through 15. I'll read it for us. Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of God. Okay, so we're going to look at this passage and try and pick through all of this stuff. I know there's a lot. Um, but remember, essentially what Paul wants to tell us is that we need to walk in Christ. We need to walk in the light of the sun. So first, let's look at the command. Paul's command comes in verse 6 when he says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So the first thing that we see in the passage is therefore. And whenever we see therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore? Therefore, I heard it. Someone said it. What is the therefore, therefore? Okay? So whenever there's a therefore, it means that there's something in front of it that has happened that Paul has said that is important for us in in understanding this passage. Uh, And to find the answer, we look back to the things that Paul said just a few sentences before. So in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Remember, we talked about how that was Paul's mission for his life. So he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom hidden are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So that was a lot too. But if you remember the last sermon, Pastor Davis showed Pastor David showed us that Paul was committed to showing the greatness of Christ with others. And he gave his whole life to present everyone mature in Christ. That was his mission. And because he's writing to people he loves so loves and cares for so deeply, he feels really urgent about this specific false teaching that is starting to bubble up and get popular in the church. And he, he really wants them to not be deluded by this false teaching. So instead of enjoying the riches of understanding and knowledge that was presented to them in Christ, um, the Colossians were getting caught up in this false teaching Um, that was telling them that they needed something more than Jesus. They were being told that they needed these additional Jewish practices um, and this special knowledge from God apart from God, uh, apart from what God had already given them in the Bible. And, And Paul was really worried about this because it was distracting them from what was really important, Jesus Christ and his gospel message. And so Paul is writing to them so that they don't get distracted and deluded by this false teaching, but so that they focus on what is most important, Jesus and his gospel. And so in in response, in light of this danger, Paul's solution is verse 6. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So I want to spend a little bit of time kind of picking this one statement apart Um, First, let's look at Paul's main command. It's to walk in Christ. 
walk in Christ. So when Paul says, like, walk in him, he's not saying that the Colossians, like, literally need to go on a walk or it's like to take a stroll inside Jesus. Like, I don't even know what that would mean. But rather, in the Jewish mind, the word walk symbolized ethical conduct, so how you lived your life. The way you walked was the way that you lived. And the way that you walked was determined by what you believed. So you could tell what someone believed by how they lived their life, how they walked. And that's the word that they would use. So, um, and the verb that Paul uses here specifically has this sense of ongoing continual action. So maybe we could translate it, um, walk continuously in him or continuously live in Christ because walking symbolizes how you live, right? You can put those, that in your like, little blank that I have on your notes. Um, live continuously in Christ. That's Paul's command. Next, let's look at the modifying statement, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So this kind of attaches onto his command to walk in, the, in Christ. Um, but here, as, the word as, means in the same way. In the same way. And then, after that, Paul kind of strings together three names for Jesus that I think often we kind of take for granted really easily. Um, but all three are really important for understanding what Paul thinks about Jesus. So, um, first, they received Jesus uh, as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, whom God promised would come to bring fulfillment to all of the Old Testament promises. So they received Jesus as Christ. Second, they received Jesus as Jesus. Um, and the name means, uh, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. So they received Jesus as salvation, the one who forgives them of their sin and makes them right with God. And then third, they received him as Lord. And this one's really important because it communicates that they had submitted their lives to him. He was the one who rules over them and owns them. He's not just their savior. He's not just their salvation. He's also their master. So they're both saved by him and they live for him. And so these are not just like throwaway titles for Jesus. They encapsulate so much of who Jesus is to the Colossian believers. He's their Messiah, their salvation, their master. Even the word received here has a little bit of nuance. So I think oftentimes when we think of the word received, we think of like welcoming Jesus into our heart kind of thing. Um, and that's like a very passive, like accepting Jesus. Uh, but that is actually a very modern concept. Uh, and, and what Paul is actually talking about here when he says received in the same way that you have received Christ, he's talking about hearing the gospel and accepting the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and then, uh, and then the subsequent proclamation of that truth. So they're hearing the gospel, believing it, and then proclaiming it. That's, what, that's all of what is, is wrapped up in received. Um, so... When Paul says, walk in Christ, he's telling them to live in a way that is appropriate for someone who has received Christ as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. 
Someone who actually has heard the gospel, believes it and proclaims it, and, and knows and believes that Christ is the Messiah, he is the Savior, and he is their Lord. So I guess to summarize, a translation of the first verse is, or could be, in the same way that you have received Jesus as Lord, continue living in a way that is proper, appropriate, for someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, and the Lord. So before we go on from here, because there's a lot more to talk about, we have to get one thing straight. Paul is talking to people who have proclaimed, accepted, believed, and proclaimed that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. You can't walk in those things if those, if he is not those things to you. So the question for all of us, before we go to the rest of the passage, is, is Jesus your Messiah, your salvation, and your Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to die for sinners? And have you cried out to him and asked him to forgive you of your sins? And have you submitted your life to his authority? I want you to like actually ask yourself that. Because one, none of the rest of the things that Paul is going to say are going to matter to you if that's not the case. Um, but two, and maybe more urgently, if that's not true of you, you've made yourself to be an enemy of God if you reject him as those things. If Christ isn't your Messiah, your Lord, your Savior, then you've rejected God. So we start here. And, and I ask you to think about that honestly. Um, and if you don't exactly know what I mean, or if you're confused about it or unsure, um, there's really there's absolutely no shame in coming to me and, talk, and like asking me about it. Um, or coming to your small group leader and asking them about it, even if you've grown up in the church, um, even if you feel like you should know all of this stuff, if you, don't, if, you're, if you don't know and if you're confused, please come talk to us. That is the most important conversation that we could ever have with you. Um, so of course, we would be so happy to talk with you about it. We have to start by asking us, is Jesus Christ the Messiah, our Savior and Lord? Okay, moving on. Paul continues to tell us more about what walking in faith actually kind of looks like in verse 7. He says, Rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So I, I love this verse because it gives us these two really good images for what walking in Christ might look like. And the first is, he, he says, rooted. And so what does that make you think of? Plants, right? So y'all probably know that roots are really, really, really important for the health of the plant. Um, plants only can grow strong and healthy because deep within the ground, they have this strong root system to hold them up and help them absorb water and nutrients, right? Um, and if a plant can't grow a solid um, root system, or if the roots of a plant get damaged somehow, the plant is at risk of dying. 
And I personally have to do this all the time with my houseplants. I love houseplants, I have so many of them. Um, but almost every plant that has died on me um, has like started to wilt and die because the root system isn't strong enough or because the roots don't grow deep enough into the soil. And so the moment that I make it stressed or I add too much water or leave it out for too long or forget to water it, poof, it's dead. It turns into an ugly pile of dead leaves because the root system hasn't been established. But the plants that have the really, really well-established root systems are total tanks. Like, they're unkillable. Complete warriors, like marine soldiers in the desert of Layton's bedroom. Like, I cannot water them for weeks, and they're just completely unfazed. Like, perfectly green, no wilting, not even a droopy leaf. And then once I finally have time to water them, they, like, perk up and look all pretty, even more. Um, and, and they're so happy, but they're able to survive for so long because their roots are so well established and they're conserving and storing and reusing and absorbing water from all of the potting soil that I have in, the, in this pot. Um, and, and they're so efficient in that that they can just survive. And they can, they're just completely unfazed by even my neglect. Um, and and I, I, think that, I think that gives a, us a really good picture of what we're supposed to be like in Christ. When we're rooted in him, we can be unfazed by the things that the world throws at us. But Paul doesn't just use a plant analogy. He also uses a building analogy. He says that we are to be built up in him, like a tall, sturdy wall. Imagine Great Wall of China. Like it's old. And it has weathered years and years of the worst stuff, and it's just in it with repair, but it's still standing. Um, so Paul gives us these two images to kind of give us what an, an idea of what walking in Christ is supposed to look like. We are to be built. We are to be like a plant with deep, strong roots in the soil of Christ, and we're supposed to be built up in Him like a sturdy brick building so that when the storms of the world and of life come and threaten us, there is no fear that we will be knocked down because we are deeply rooted and established in him. Aren't those analogies still helpful? But on top of that, to take it even further, Paul also says that gratitude, thankfulness, is a sort of litmus test for if you're walking in Christ. And Paul, throughout the book of Colossians, places thankfulness as the center of Christian living. So we're going to hear about it a lot more throughout the rest of the book. But he says that gratitude is a main characteristic of a true Christian. And, um, and a great way to tell if you're actually rooted in Christ and established in him is if you're thankful to God. So in all of these ways, Paul commands us to continue to walk in Christ in the same way that we have received Christ as our Lord, our Savior, and our Messiah. And we see that in the way that we are rooted into Christ, built up in him and established, growing in thankfulness. Okay, so that's kind of, that's the command for us. And that's what Paul wants us to do. Uh, but Paul moves on to apply all of, all of that 
um, that command to the specific context of the Colossians in our second point, um, in, in verse 8. So let's look at the context now. The context. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this is how we like explicitly know that there was some sort of false teaching that was threatening the church, um, because Paul has to tell them, like, there's false teaching going on um, in, in your church, and you have to be careful. Don't let your guard down, or else you'll be led to walk in those things. You'll be led to live in that rather than in Christ. So the danger here is that they could be snatched away if they listen to these false teachings instead of Christ. So for the Colossians, what walking in Christ meant, living in Christ, was not getting caught up in false teaching. So um, what are the dangerous false teachings that Paul is talking about here? We don't know exactly, um, but the way that he kind of, the way that he explains it is philosophy, um, which it literally translates a, a love of wisdom. And so the idea is like wisdom that comes apart from God's word. Um, empty deceit, uh, which uh, could be teachings that were trying to deceive the Colossians into believing something other than what was taught by Paul um, or um, taught in the church. Uh, he also references human tradition. And so Paul might have in mind the rabbinic teachings that he was brought up in um, as, uh, as, as a young man. Um, but this could be like purely human ritualistic religion. So everything, or religion that doesn't have anything to do with the real triune God. Um, and then he, he says the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, and these probably reference the uh, like pagan attitude of the time that uh, that there were like many local gods, like small gods, little g gods that supposedly ruled over different areas or peoples or like elements and things like that. You can think of like, like um, Greek mythology, that kind of, um, that kind of little g god. And so when Paul talks about all these things, especially like elemental spirits, he doesn't actually believe that those things exist um, because they don't. Like he talks about that in, in, a path in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 8. Um, but his, his point is that the Colossian church doesn't belong to the pagan world anymore. Like all the rest of the world is going to believe all of these false things about how the world works and, um, and uh, yeah, gods and spirits and human tradition, empty deceit, philosophy um, that's apart from Christ. Um, but now Christ is the ruler of the Colossian church. Christ is the ruler of this, of all, of, over all of these people, and they have been brought into Christ's kingdom and set free from identifying with the world and with their earthly nations. And they're set free from all of these false truths, false teachings that have been pressed on them by the world. And so whatever the false teaching in Colossae actually was, whether it was Gnosticism or whatever, or like Jewish practices, whatever it was, it was just another local tribal false teaching. Just nothing in the light of Christ. It had no power. So for us, I mean, it, 
it's most likely that y'all aren't being tempted by like, Buddhism or other religions. Maybe you are. We could talk about that. I'd love to. Um, but what are the actual forms of like false teaching that are kind of be, being promulgated in the world that you might be hearing, that you might be tempted by? There are the easier ones to identify, things like atheism um, and like paganism in the form of like fortune telling and astrology and Ouija boards and crystals and um, occult practices. Um, there's things like sexual revolution ideology and identity politics. There's evolutionary theory, um, like false religions and cults, Greek mythology, um, even like uh, the attitude of you can believe whatever you want from relativism or like postmodernism. Like lots of different things that you could probably identify as very like clear um, ideologies that stand in contrast to the word of God. Um, but there are also harder ones to identify that kind of come dressed in Christian language. And those are the ones that I kind of wanted to speak to um, more, uh, in more detail. These are the ones that kind of use the language of the Bible and might even quote scripture at some times, but are just, just as untrue and maybe even more dangerous because they are insidious. And so I want to like kind of, I listed them in your notes, but I want to kind of walk through them just to get you to think about them, okay? I won't have time to like debunk all of them, um, but, uh, but I want you to just start to think about them. Uh, so the first seven are ones that I found from this good blog article. Um, and um, it's seven false gospels. So the first one that I have listed is the good people gospel. This one says we're basically good people. We make mistakes, nobody's perfect, but we're good people at heart. And this claim is dangerous because it ignores sin and doesn't make, or just it ignores sin, thinking that ignoring it will make it go away. Recognizing sin means that there's someone to whom that we are held responsible. And even though our, our pride doesn't like that idea, like it really doesn't sit with us, sin is real. And we can't just sweep it under the rug because we feel like we've done good things in our lives or because we feel like we're good people. Um, and that, that, that sin is something that we need rescued from. So that, that false teaching is very insidious, but very... Um, Tempting because we, we like to think that we're not as sinful as we actually are. So that's a good people gospel. The second one is the self-esteem gospel. So this one says, like, believe in yourself. You, you might have some struggles and some issues, but you're resilient, you're powerful, you're strong. Um, and um, Jesus is, is a savior who will give you all, everything that you need to solve your problems. And this, the self-esteem gospel, is aimed more actually at the worship of self than it is at the worship of God. Because the aim of it is to belittle the weightiness and urgency of sin and elevate the self to feel good about yourself more than, than it, you ought to be. And when the, the, the true gospel offers us freedom from ourselves, and freedom from making ourselves bigger than God so that we can worship and, and find rest in him. That's a self-esteem gospel. The third is the, the expressive individualism gospel. We've talked about this one before too. Um, 
And this one kind of claims that Christianity is all about being true to yourself and following your heart and, and living authentically. Um, but in reality, this idea runs counter to everything that the gospel says. We're sinners who can't trust our, our hearts. Um, and apart from Christ, we're slaves to sin. We're not free in ourselves. And, and our sins darken our minds and blind us to the reality um, that there are two, two realities so much that we're unable to discover what is true and good. That's the, self, the expressive individualism gospel. Fourth is the optional Jesus gospel. Um, this one's a pretty common one. Um, it says Jesus is a way, but not the way. A person can find their way to God through a number of different spiritual experiences. Um, and so this one obviously flies in the face of so much of what the Bible teaches about who Jesus actually is. Um, but in essence, it thwarts the gospel. Um, because if Jesus is not really the Son of God who came to die for sin um, and rose again, then there is no, no good news to believe. Uh, the prosperity gospel is another one that might be really common to y'all. Um, this one distorts the view of Jesus and says that he guarantees followers a happy and healthy life with no troubles. Um, and I, I won't spend time talking about that one because I, I feel like you can even see in your own life that, that faithful Christians do suffer. And life is not um, all, all filled with just good when we come to Jesus. Number six is the faith and gospel. The faith and gospel. So this distortion claims that faith and something else is sufficient to save. That, that we have to have faith and good works, or faith and enough self-loathing, or faith and a right understanding of God. Um, and this one distorts the gospel because it teaches that the free gift of salvation is not enough for it. That that there's something that we have to do in addition to receiving the gospel. Um, number seven is the faith so gospel. So this one is like kind of the opposite spectrum of the faith and gospel um, because it, it teaches what, what we might call cheap grace, um, which says Jesus is my salvation. Jesus saves me so I can live however I want. Because in the end, God is going to forgive me because I'm saved. Um, and yes, in response, it is true that, that um, Christ has set us free for freedom. Um, but we are set free from sin's power to live for Christ, not to live however we want. And to take, to take advantage of God's grace in that way um, belittles what Jesus did on the cross and cheapens his grace. So, so faith doesn't give us the freedom to stay in sin, but it frees us from sin so that we can live for Jesus. Um, other false gospels that I, that I might add to these are the half-true gospel. And, um, people might say the Bible isn't always true or sufficient, and, and some things that it says are kind of outdated. Um, so sometimes we need other things like science and philosophy and modern thought to correct the Bible. We have to be really careful about that. Um, ninth, maybe the means to an end gospel, which is really similar to the, number seven, the faith so gospel. Um, but this one might say, like, Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that I can, I can be free from stress or so I can be happy or so that I can further my, my goals in life or, like, 
be successful or something. Um, and some of, some of the things that would kind of connect to that one might be true. Like there are benefits that we have when we um, are in Christ, but the point of salvation is not to um, like get stuff from God. But the point of salvation, the, the gospel, the ultimate end of the gospel is the glory of God, not, not the benefit of those, not primarily the benefit of those who receive it. So these can, these like false gospels, um, you'll, sometimes you'll be able to like see them and regard them as just outright false, just wrong. But some of them might not at first glance be, glance be as pernicious or dangerous to you. Um, and some of them you might be so used to that you don't even recognize at first glance that it's actually unhelpful and wrong. Um, and so we have to walk according to God's truth and not according to the world and, and kind of build a habit of recognizing what is true and what is false. There are a lot of ideas and beliefs in the world that will try and distract us from the real true gospel. And in the end, what Paul is telling us by, by, by bringing this, this um, false teaching to our awareness is that we need to be focused and rooted in Christ and built up in him and not anything else. If we walk in Christ and if, if, if we put our trust in him, he makes sense of the world and he empowers us to live in faith. Okay, so let's, let's move on to our last point, kind of wrap things up, the catalysts. Um, so some of you might know this, um, but before the, the Lord planted his desire for ministry in my heart, um, I was actually trying to get a master's in teaching um, or teaching English to speakers of other languages. Uh, so in the program that I was in, um, we had the opportunity to do these teaching observations and, and like be a teaching assistant in a local um, public school. And so I got to teach first grade um, at a local English language development um, elementary school. So most of my kids were um, bilingual uh, or either bilingual or learning English and Spanish dominant. Um, and something that I learned while I was uh, doing my um, observations is that when you tell kids to do something, they always need a reason why. Like my kids would never listen to me if I didn't give them a good reason. They, like, for example, they go to the bathroom and come out and you're like, uh, did, did you wash your hands? And they turn to you and they're like picking their nose and they're like, what? Por que? Por que tengo que lavarme las manos? Like, why? Um, and I, I'm, I'm like having to tell them to speak English also, and it's kind of like awkward, like, um, you need to go back and wash your hands, that's really gross, and they're just like, no. <laughs> and and for, like, for kids in that situation, like if you don't give them a good, compelling reason um, why they have to do something, they just won't do it. Like, they're just not gonna do it. And sometimes I think that we too need a lot of reasons from God to obey. Like when it comes to walking in a way that is pleasing to God, especially like in, uh, in light of this passage, like we can be really childish. Like we can, we can act like, we, or we can just not do something if, if, if we don't have a good reason for it. And so God is really, really kind to us 
uh, and in our last section to give us really amazing reasons why we should walk in Christ. Okay, so the rest of the passage, in the rest of the passage, Paul gives us four catalysts, four reasons to walk in him and reject what is not in Christ. So essentially, just to summarize all four, walk in Christ because you have everything you need in him. Walk in Christ because you have everything you need in him. So I want you to skim over the text really quickly and look for repeated words. Like what do you see over and over again in this text? There's one phrase or like one couplet, two words that you, you might see over and over again. People see it. It's in Christ. In Christ. This passage is actually really important for a doctrine that we call union with Christ. Union with Christ. And it's this idea that when you're saved, you become spiritually united with Jesus such that everything that happens to Jesus happens to you. So for example, when Jesus died, if you are united with him, you died with him. And when he was raised, you were raised in new life with him. When he was exalted, you are exalted with him. And so I kind of spoiled it a little bit, um, but... Uh, let's let Paul explain to us like the doctrine of the union in Christ and how it motivates our walk. So he gives us four, four different reasons. The first catalyst, the first reason is Jesus is God and you have been filled in him. Verses nine and 10. Jesus is God. So we talked about this last time I preached, but Paul says all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Um, that was in first Corinthians, or not first Corinthians, that was in Colossians 1. Um, and here he pretty much says it again, for in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, meaning that Jesus is God, truly and fully God. Um, so Paul wants us to see that every other lesser God, all the spiritual beings that they might have been tempted to be distracted by, are nothing in comparison to Jesus, who is the fullness of God in bodily form. So Jesus isn't just one of many gods or one of many in a hierarchy of spiritual powers, but he is God himself. And the reason here that Paul gives is not just his person, like Jesus is God, but also that Jesus is God to us, in, or Jesus is being God means something for us. The exciting thing is that Christians are filled with the one true God. Paul tells us that our lives as Christians are flooded with Jesus, with his power and his nearness and his richness. The word filled here has the connotation of completion and fulfillment, like a cup that's all the way filled up to the brim. We are filled with Jesus. We are made complete in him. And if we are completely filled up in Christ, that means that we don't need anything else to fill us. Paul describes the sufficiency of Jesus in terms of his authority. He is the head, like the head of a school or of an organization. He's, he's the rule of authority over all. So if Christ is God himself, and if he's truly the head over all powers, and if he fills us completely, then we don't need the philosophies of the world or other gods or other truths for security or fulfillment. We have everything that we need in Jesus. So Paul is already making a pretty good case, but he goes on, catalyst number two, 
you were spiritually aligned with him through being buried and raised with him. He says it this way, in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So in the Old Testament, the physical sign of circumcision was a sign of allegiance. So for Israel, circumcision was this outward manifestation of allegiance and belonging to God and not to the world. It was supposed to set them apart from everyone else and symbolize their belonging to the community of the people of God. So you might know that I went to USC um, and uh, a lot of people in my family, uh, including my parents, went to UCLA. So when I chose to go to, UC, to USC instead of UCLA, I made a big deal out of it, a big moment. Um, it, it, I pretty much like had this whole ceremony um, where I donned all of my USC gear. My sister also went to USC, so we like wore all of our USC stuff. And I got this giant USC flag, and I just ran around my house like waving it. Like, and it made my parents so mad. Um, but uh, I, I was doing that because I was, I was showing my allegiance to USC in contrast to this house of UCLA. Um, and that's the, kind of the idea of what circumcision was supposed to do. It was supposed to be a sign of allegiance to God. But now, Paul says that through baptism in Christ, believers undergo a spiritual circumcision. It's not made with one made with hands, but it's a sign, a spiritual sign to the whole world that your allegiance is no longer with the world, but with Christ. That's what he's talking about. And he goes on in verse 12 to explain what that sign actually is. Um, I gave it away already, but it's baptism. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So the way that this transfer of allegiances works for Christians um, is, is by dying and being raised in baptism. Uh, and, and so baptism here has these like, spiritual implications. He says that Christians have been buried with Christ. So the lowering of the believer in the waters of baptism is parallel to um, their, their dying with Jesus. And so in the same way that Christ died and was buried, so the Christian is. And the raising from the water is parallel to the resurrection of Christ. So in the same way that God raised up Christ from the dead, so does he raise the Christian from the dead. So remember that Paul here is talking about allegiances. So in baptism, you symbolically display that in, that in being united with Christ, you die to all of your former allegiances, whether that's like school or family or your sins, the world, um, your friends, etc., and you show in an outward, visible way that you belong to Christ and his church first and foremost. That's why baptism is really important. It doesn't earn your salvation or actually like change anything in you, but it's this representation of something that has already happened spiritually in your life. You've already died and been raised with Christ and everything about your old self has already passed away with him. You're a new creation full of faith in Christ. And all of that is done by the powerful working of God. The second reason is because we have allegiance with Christ through being um, buried and raised with him. So the third catalyst that he gives is in verses 13 and 14. You were made alive together with him. 
The third catalyst is this precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, kneeling to the cross. The third catalyst is, um, is essentially the gospel. He says that you were dead in your trespasses and in your uncircumcision, which is referring to this fact that all people are spiritually dead, including you and me, because of our sin. And for those who are dead, there is no hope of life. Remember that circumcision is a sign of allegiance, right? So uncircumcision is a sign of being spiritually against God. It's, it's a sign of being an enemy of God. And God has no reason to make anyone who, his, who is his enemy alive again, right? That wouldn't make sense. That includes all of us, you and me, before Christ. But in mercy and in undeserved love, God made you who were dead to be alive again, alive in Jesus Christ. As Jesus rose, we also rose with him. And he accomplishes forgiveness of our sins by canceling the record of debt that we have before God because of our sin. In the Greco-Roman world, the, rec the, word, or the record of debt was this written note of indebtedness. It's like an IOU or uh, like a bill that you get in the mail telling you that you have an overdue balance. Like, it's this note that tells you that you're in debt. And Paul uses this as a word picture to represent the indebtedness that all of us have before God because of sin. A debt so big that we could never pay it. A debt so serious that it would cost us our lives. But in love, the way that God deals with that debt is not by making you pay for it with your life, but he takes that debt and he nails it to the cross. The place where Jesus paid the price for the debt of sin. The image of nailing something to a cross comes from that notice fastened to that torture device, the cross, by Roman authorities when they crucified someone. And it was supposed to tell everyone the crime that they were being executed for. And so in this really powerful symbolism, Paul says that in Jesus's death, when he hangs on the cross, your debt of sin gets nailed to that cross with him so that you don't have to pay for it anymore. It's canceled and you're forgiven. The third catalyst, the reason why we can walk in Christ is the most magnificent and the most scandalous truth of the entire history of the world that in Jesus Christ, the worst of sinners can be forgiven. That's catalyst number three. Catalyst number four is God reigns supremely over all things in Christ. Verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the last catalyst seals the deal. The same rulers and authorities and false teachings and small g-gods that Paul warned about 
that were threatening to snatch away the Colossian Christians are all made completely powerless and put to shame by Jesus' triumph over them. The false teaching that tempted the Colossians and the ones that now tempt us, if we are in Christ, have no power over us. In his grace, God gives us a lot of reasons in this passage for us to walk in Christ. And so in conclusion, the question that this passage leaves us with are, have you received Jesus as Savior, Messiah, and Lord? Are you spiritually dead or are you spiritually alive in him? Do you still carry that note indicating that you have a debt to be paid to God? Or has that debt been nailed to the cross with Christ? If you don't have Christ as your Savior and your Lord, as your Messiah, then you will get caught up in false teaching that will endanger your soul. All of the things that Paul warned about, all of the things that we see in our world that are coming against us will snatch you away. But if you are in Christ, and if you have received Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, and as Lord, if you are alive in him, then walk in him. You are complete in him. You are protected in him. Throughout the rest of the chapters two, three, and four, Paul is going to talk a lot about what walking in Christ looks like in detail. But this is the heart of it. If you were once dead and now made alive in Christ, and if you are filled with him, if your allegiance is with him, and you have everything you need in him, and you must live in a way that is fitting of that reality. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for um, this command to walk in Christ. And we thank you that it's not a command that just kind of hits us on the head, um, but that in your grace, through Paul, you have given us a really compelling argument, really clear line of thought. That yes, there are things in our world that are coming at us to tempt us to fall away from you. There are false teachings and half-truths. Things in ourselves and things in the world that we are tempted to make bigger than Christ. The things that we're tempted to believe we need in addition to Christ. And yet, if we truly have been raised from death to life in Jesus Christ, if our debt has been paid, if our allegiance has been transferred from that of the world to that of Christ, if we have truly received him as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, then we have nothing to fear. We are complete in him. We are filled in him. God, I pray that for us who are in Christ, 
you would teach us the sweetness of the unity of, or the doctrine of the unity with Christ. That because we are united with him, we share in all of the spiritual blessings that you give us in the gospel. All of the things that you did through Christ. I pray that you would help us who are in Christ to treasure that and to live in it, to walk in it. But I also ask for those of us who are not sure or who don't know who Christ is or who have rejected him or who have believed false teachings that Christ isn't enough, that he's a means to an end, that we need something more than him. I ask that you would use the picture of the gospel at the end of this passage to bring them to the truth. That they have the opportunity to place their faith and entrust themselves to the one who came, lived a perfect life, died a satisfactory death, and rose again so that our debt could be nailed to the cross with him, fully paid, we could have new life in Jesus Christ. And I pray that he, for all of us, would be enough. He would be our sufficiency. That we would be filled in him. Help us to walk in the same way that we have received Christ as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. May we be found faithful unto you. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.